Welcome to Lumpen Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on Lumpen Radio. This week, we chatted about sports in the aftermath of a pandemic, learned about the rights attack on education, and puzzled over 3D modeling. All this plus the Trump Diaries, Size Matters, and AWCYFM, only on the Lumpen Week in Review for November 27, 2020. Happy holidays, everyone! Mario Smith spoke to sports historian Jack Silverstein about fandom in the COVID era. Will fans come back to fill arenas after the pandemic passes? And how has today's toxic political environment affected the sports we love? Find out on News from the Service Entrance every Thursday at 2 p.m. Joining me on the phone uh, uh, via FaceTime is sports historian and a really cool guy, Jack Silverstein. Jack M. Silverstein is the author of the book Six Rings, The Bulls, The City, and The Dynasty That Changed the Game. That book is approaching, but we got Jack Silverstein now. What's up, Jack? What's up, Mario? How are you, man? Man, look, I'm great. What a year it's been. But let me ask you something, though. We're talking about the politicization. One day, talking will happen for me. We're talking about how sports have been politicized and 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 this moment being an unfortunate uh effect of politicization we've got a brand new administration coming in 50 something days um and and there's 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 light if you will at the end of this tunnel with covid is there a way that the philosophy of fandom and sports will shift with a brand new administration you think because it seems like if if you take if you take covid seriously as a country you can control it if you if if those vaccinations people actually get them <clears throat> you might run a chance or not run a chance you probably will see a, a, a significant flattening of covid 19 but will we still see fans in the stands? Is that going to still be a thing? We've got 35,000 seat stadiums. Do you risk putting 35,000 people back in the stadium again? I don't know. I, I don't think I have any way to answer that question, but I, two things come to mind. Um, and the first is that we said, you know, with a new administration, I think people forget just how volatile everything was in sports in 2016 at a point where I, I know I damn thought that Hillary Clinton was going to be elected president. Right. And in, during the swan song of the Obama presidency is when everything heated up and again it happened in sports. I think a really underrated cultural lightning bolt moment was Super Bowl 50. And Super Bowl 50, that was the Super Bowl in February of 16 after the 2015 season. It was the Panthers and the Broncos. Mm-hmm. And the Panthers were 15-1. and one. Cam Newton was the MVP of the NFL. Mm-hmm. And Cam Newton was getting a lot of heat and a lot of bogus heat for, you know, typical stuff that gets tossed on black quarterbacks to showy and he's dancing. And he's, remember, this was when... Uh, what was it called? Where he did the, I forget what the thing was called that he did. The, the, I can't remember the name of that silly. You know what I'm saying? Now I feel, he now dabbed. I feel old. He dabbed. He that's dabbed. What it was. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you, Jamie Trekker. Thanks, man. <laughs> there were there were people writing letters to newspapers about, right. oh God, he's dabbing. All right. So then 
they get out there, and now we go to the halftime show, and no one remembers who actually was the headliner of this halftime show because what they remember is that's when Beyonce let everybody see Formation. And yep. she came out with those dancers, and yep. they rocked the house. And yes. it's funny because it wasn't even her show. I mean, she was, it was, I think it was Coldplay featuring Beyonce and Bruno Mars. That's right. Well, that was, that was Beyonce's, that was Beyonce's night. And I remember a lot of, hearing a lot of backlash about, oh, what is she doing at the Super Bowl with this, like, black protest, whatever. And I'm telling you, Super Bowl 50 immediately stood in my mind as something's, something's up. Yeah, and then we had, um, you know, and then we had the Espies after after Philando Castillo, and um, uh, shoot, I'm forgetting um, Alton Sterling, and then the shooting of the police in Dallas, and then we had the Espies and Melo and LeBron and Chris Paul and Dwayne Wade went up there and made that speech. This is all at a time when people are kind of assuming, oh yeah, Clinton's gonna win, right? It's, you know, Colin Kaepernick, his protest was in August of 2016 and then into September. Again, at a point where we still are thinking Clinton's going to win. So there's stuff that was already coming up without... Now, the things that were kind of leading that, I think, are, are some, of the, some of the catalysts for what also driving people to the polls to support Trump. I mean, this stuff is all connected. But... I don't think it's as easy as to say, well, you know, when we have a new administration, some of this stuff will tamp down. I mm -hmm. think that there has been an awakening over the past four or five years um, for a lot of athletes, black athletes, and for a lot of fans as well. And I think a lot of it, like you said, the shift in the paradigm from owners to, I guess, individuals in a way, you know, kind of one of the things that people get, one of the reasons for the backlash against NBA players is this idea that they're like controlling their fate. You yeah. know, they're taking the means of the, of, of, of free agency into their own hands and they're, you know, and, and fans are kind of doing that sort of a thing too, because one of the debates around ratings dropping is well, like, well, fans are just watching differently. You know, they're cutting cords, and they're not interested in full games. They're interested in fantasy, and they, they got NFL Red Zone. So I think a lot of some of those older institutional landscapes are shifting. I don't know where, I don't know where they land, but one thing that kind of struck me was there was a point during the bubble where I thought, I wonder if um, digital fandom will be the next wave. It really felt like a breaking point where... NBA fans, you know, everybody's already on their phones and already doing like two or three things at once while watching a game. All right, right, well, what if you can be ported into a stadium digitally? And I was like, I wonder if like this younger generation will even care about going to games. But what struck me was that after a little while, I felt less interested in sports and in the NBA. And I'm a big NBA head. And I think that the reason is, is that we or maybe I discounted the importance of what happens in these venues. Yeah. And the fact that number one, it's different venues. The idea of like, there's a difference between the bulls, you know, playing at the United center and then going to the Delta center, 
you know, you remember exactly what it looked like when Michael's last shot to see all the Utah fans. You remember what it looked like to have LeBron and Kyrie win that title in Oakland. You know, you remember what it looked like, or or the flip side, when somebody wins at home. You know, um, when the Bulls won in 92 or when any of those things, or, or Toronto when Kawhi hit his shot against Philly, mm-hmm. and that, that crowd reaction. So you remember what that felt like because it's different. And every time a game shifted in the NBA and it was like, yeah, we'll be back at Orlando for like, to, like right. you know, right. Right. And, and seeing the exact same background. But then the other thing is that if we can't get together, I can't go to a game but I can't get together with you to watch a game. I can't have you over to my house to watch a game. We can't go to a bar to watch a game. And suddenly that real connection that you feel as a fan to what's happening in the stadium, it's cut off. Because I think something that I didn't think about was that even if I'm not going to a game, I like knowing who's at the game. Exactly. I like knowing, like, you know, Mario, you're at you're at, uh, at the cell and you post a you know white Sox tonight or whatever and it's like if i'm a white Sox fan oh i can't be there but i'm like ah i got people there you know mario's there right. and jamie's there and my uncle's there and all this and um and when you take that away and no now nobody's going to the games and your friends are you're not going but your friends aren't going but you also can't have people over you can't have that game day experience you can't go to a bar now sports is just what the people who don't like sports say it is. They try to say it's just entertainment. And we're like, no, it's deeper than that. It's about community. It's about togetherness. It's about history. It's about generations. Well, all of a sudden, when you don't have fans in the stands and you see you see these shots of empty fields, this pipe, they're piping in fake sound or you're in the NBA bubble, all of a sudden, when all that is disrupted, it is just entertainment. It becomes just a video game. It and you know what? Fantasy sports, and that, you know what? Yeah, I, I, and not to cut you off. I no, go ahead. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a big football guy in terms of English Premier League football and La Liga and Serie A and things like that. And I'm having the hardest time watching a match because there are no people but the players there. For me, part of the draw, uh, is particularly with English Premier League football. Is hearing the choir people here. preaching to the choir, you here. know, people yeah. going berserk over yep. their their teams that they support. Watching the White Sox this year for me, there were great moments. Giolito's no hitter, Abreu beating the Cubs into submission. Right. I mean, a lot of really cool moments, but right. they lost a lot of flavor because there were no people at Wrigley Field. Right. I couldn't see the the utter disappointment on a Cub fan's face that I love seeing. Right. I couldn't. I couldn't see people losing it at 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 a uh, guaranteed rate because Giolito just threw this no hitter, or Tim Anderson just beat out a, a a really hard base hit. But baseball's a little different, though, man, because it's so much a radio game and so much a yeah. call game. You know what I mean? And so many games are daytime. You don't expect fans to be there. But when yeah, fans but you, aren't uh, at Soldier Field and when fans aren't at, you know, uh, Highbury. You, you notice it so much more because those places are always full. A day baseball yeah, but Jamie, game. But, Jamie, think about even in a baseball game, even a regular game, if you're at a regular, regular season game, but it's it's tight. You're, you know, you're up you're up 3-1 in the seventh. Well, all of a sudden, the home crowd, you're standing for yeah. every two out at bat. 
You That's know? true. When, you, when you're watching on TV, you feel that. You can feel. You can hear fans taking to their feet, and then you know the guy gets a base hit. Everybody sits down. And the next guy comes out. Everybody stands right back up. Everybody's applauding. I didn't. As much as I've written about fandom, thought about fandom, talked about fandom, been a fan, obviously, I don't know that I fully appreciated all the ways in which fans are so intricately connected to the games and what happens. And, and, you know, as I've gotten to know athletes, you know, I understand the division between athletes and fans, but I also understand that they, they fuel off that as well. I mean, it's not like always the, it, it's often an ugly, needy relationship um, between fans and athletes, but there's some, there's a real bond there. There's a real connection there. And it's just, it's not the same. So let's say, you know, let's say we get this vaccine and, you know, within six months, maybe everybody, things are somewhat back to normal. You feel comfortable going. Are people still going to want to high five? Are they going to want to, I mean, think about the times you've hugged strangers at a ballpark or, Mm. you know, comforted someone who was crying because they finally saw X, Y, Z and, you know, high five, turning around, you know, there's a home run or, 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 you know, whatever. Pat Patterson, Patterson has a kick return touchdown and you're turn around, high five and everybody. And that kind of goes out the window, but also with the political differences, I mean, this was, this was the first time that the office of the presidency was as deeply politicized in and of itself in my life. Um, and certainly we hadn't had anything like the president actually calling out large swaths of Americans mm-hmm. and demonizing them um, by just where they live.
at Sports chatted with Michelle Hessel and Mint Bunya Padachoti about food cart vendors and all things scannable. Hessel and Bunya Padachoti made 3D replicas of everyday objects, inviting us to consider how and why these things matter in our lives. Bad at Sports airs Wednesdays at 11 a.m. Welcome to Bad at Sports Center. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, thank you. You're very welcome. So uh, both of you work uh, sort of on the boundaries of art and design and tech, uh, and uh, has your work's been up at this exhibition in Carthage, which recently, of course, uh, came down just in time for COVID to shut everything down. So our, our listeners can't quite go and see it at the moment. Um, but I would like to just start with that exhibition. Um, what are the pieces that you have in there? If we were just to uh, walk into the space, uh, you know, what would we experience when we came in? Yeah. Um, so this exhibition at Carthage shows a few of our works. The works that you'll see there are mostly um, using this technology called 3D scanning. So you'll see if you go there, um, I guess you can imagine it. Um, one piece of mine called Hidden in Plain Sight that is a 3D printed installation about the street food vendors in New York. And then we have some pieces that Mint and I collaborated um, for a project called Tango Dance. And in those pieces, you'll see a lot of point cloud 3D scans. Um, and you'll see that in a video format. You'll also see it in a printed format um, and in a more like 3D visualization. So so the 3D, so they're objects. Are these like sort of presented as like sculptures on sculpture stands? Uh, like you might see with like a traditional piece of pottery, even though it's a 3D print or is it, yeah, what is it? What is it physically? Yeah. So for the for the hidden plain side work, the the one with the 3D printed sculptures, you will see these fairly small 3D printed food carts and the people behind them. They you put it in a really nice way because it really kind of looks like pottery. Um, it's a small piece that is like, I would say, six inches by eight um, at its max. So it's fairly small, um, but it has a lot of very fine detail and it's printed in color, which is um, something that I guess most people don't don't think when they think about 3D, 3D printing at first, um, but they, they look just like the real food cards at a much, much smaller scale. Excellent. Excellent. Uh, and the other piece, can we sort of get describe sort of the physical or sort of the, the experience of, of what we'd experience there? So the other piece, um, I had a series of uh, project that we did together called Tango Dance. Um, and one of the piece uh, that is a video is called um, Boarding in Boarding Time. Um, Boarding Time is is as how, how, what's the best way to describe this? Boarding time is a point cloud of a 3D scanning technique. Um, and we use this phone call, uh, Google Tango, to capture the, the environment when we were boarding the plane. And the way we capture it is just walking with our phone um, in front of us very slowly and just move the phone left to right and scanning um, people sitting in front of us, but in a continuous movement. And the result looks like a lot of dots in, in space, in 3D space. So it's kind of like you're boarding a plane in a way, but, bas- but you're watching a video and it's like you're being 
the plane is coming to you instead of you walking into the plane. And like a single channel projected. In a single channel projection. Pretty large. Cool. So uh, I guess the interest here, I guess the first question is like, why 3D 3D scanning? What does 3D scanning do or what, what interest do you have in it that, that brings you to these works? Yeah, this is, a, this is a really good question. I think Mint and I fell into 3D scanning not at the same time. We became collaborators because we love this technology so much. But for me, 3D scanning is really a great way for me as an artist to tell stories in a non-conventional way. Um, I have always been fascinated by video um, and photography and painting um, and technology on top of all that. So it's kind of like bringing technology into all these other things that I like to be able to tell stories in a three-dimensional way um, and and just just in a, involve the audience in a completely new way. Um, so I think it really, to me, it opened up this so many possibilities in terms of storytelling. And that's how I started to fall in love with it. And now I'm completely trapped and everything I do end up, ends up having a little bit of 3D scanning. For me, um, I fell in love with the storytelling part aspect of it as well. But when I when the 3D scanning caught my eye, um, is because I had a architecture and design background, so I know how to create uh, geometry and scenes from scratch, from just like a cube. And 3D scanning techniques gives me this really fast and efficient way to capture the environment without having to go through so much labor work um, to create the scenes. And once I, you know, got a hold and and learned about these techniques, there was no going back. It was just more experimentation, more prototypes, and pushing the limits of how this technology can, can do. Got it. So I'm kind of curious for, for people who are not used to some, some of these like gliders or the, like the scans that we have um, of, of the, of the people in the food carts, could you sort of describe like what that, what that process is like? Cause there are sort of portraits of a person in their, in their small business. Um, what is that? Like, what, what, what's that process? Cause I think it's sort of reflected in the image itself or the object itself, I should say. You mean what's the process of capturing it? Um, yeah. So it, it was a really interesting project to create. Um, it took me around almost a year to finalize the project. Um, it's something I, I'm not from New York and I moved to New York and I saw all these food carts around the city. And to me, to me, it was really interesting. So I became fascinated by the carts and I started to imagine what were the stories behind the carts. And then um, I just started talking to the people behind them. And I learned that these are all immigrants and that they have these crazy stories. So I wanted to tell their stories. Um, So I started collaborating with a few of them um, and in working closely with them, kind of like as a documentary in a way, interviewing them um, and documenting their cards and their human figures in 3D. So I, I literally went there and I asked him, can I make a portrait of you? He was like, uh, sure, okay. And I was like, it, it was totally fine. I'm just going to have to take 500 photos of you from every possible angle. Um, and at that point, 
that that vendor, he looked at me kind of as if I was crazy, but he was too nice and he agreed to my weird proposal. And that's kind of the process. So I I went with a camera around him taking photos from every possible angle. Same same thing um, for his card. So taking photos of his food cart from every possible angle. And I mean, hundreds and hundreds of photos. And then putting that in the software that is going to process all the photos and find overlapping features. And based on that, the software is able to create a 3D model. And then once you have the 3D model, you can do anything with it from just putting it on the web to doing what I did, which is 3D printing. On this episode, we're talking about bonding. And we're going to one of my favorite spots in Bridgeport. All right, hold on now. I just got it. Are you tagging right. the bus stop? Nah, it's squatter code. Let's others know what's going on. Do all you guys use it? Oh, you better believe it. Some of the guys I know can't even spell Bridgeport, so these glyphs is all they got, you know? Can't spell you nothing. You get phones and use emoji. Emoji? Uh, they're smiley faces and pictures. Um, sometimes it can be tough to get emotions through text messages. <laughs> Why don't, why don't no one just pick up the phone? Oh, people are crippled by luxury. Thank you. Finally, someone says what I've been saying for years. <laughs> You're a very eloquent speaker, Jessica. Thank you, Kyle. Say, where'd you live before you moved to Bridgeport? Oh, uh, sort of southwest of here. Joliet area. Oh, yeah? What were you doing down there? Uh, catching up on reading, mostly. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's, it's, uh, that's, that's oh, cool. Oh, wait. Look. Someone drew a squatter code on this light pole. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's a very good eye, Jessica. You see the square? This means the campsite stash. Sweet. What's in a stash? Ah, uh, you know, supplies, food, drinks, stuff like that. We're at a gravel-filled vacant lot right with the, overgrowth this, uh, and a lot of tires. Ah, curse word. What? There was a hole in the fence right here, and the city patched it, I guess. Uh, damn, I'm too old to be jumping fences. <laughs> oh, well, hold on. There's a gate. Yeah, it's padlocked. Oh, let me can't see. can't jump. That's... I'm too yeah, old. Yeah, just, um, just a little gonna... jiggle here, and the tumbler should... Pa! There we go. You just picked the padlock? Where'd you learn how to do that? Well, you can only read so many books, Kyle. I'm very intrigued and slightly frightened. Hey, come on. Let's see what's in this stash of yours. It's over there in the weeds. Oh, the cooler? Go ahead and open it. Looks like skunked beer and a book of matches. What do we do with this? <coughs> Welcome to your first official Bridgeport tire fire. My throat is burning. <coughs> used to be, you could find tire fires every night of the week. How? Why'd they stop? All them guys are dead. <coughs> From what? I think they died of black lung. <coughs> All of them? <coughs> yeah, we should probably go. <laughs> I think I'm good here. Now we should go. Tire smoke's habit forming. Put something over Sure it face. is. I, I can leave whenever I want. <laughs> we should go. Trust me. Listen, listen, I know it's early, but I think you already need to quit tire fires. Don't judge me. No. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna shut right. this thing off.
This week on the Trump Diaries, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Georgia certify their states for Biden. Trump's attempted coup fizzles out. Trump signals he will pardon many, many people. Trump's attempt to game the census fizzles. And let's give thanks. America can finally start to move on. These are the Trump Diaries. Day 1401, November 20th. The Centers for Disease Control told Americans not to travel for Thanksgiving, citing record rises in new coronavirus cases. Two million new cases were reported across the United States within the past two weeks. White House Press Secretary Kaylee McEnany responded by calling the new guidelines Orwellian, saying that's just not the American way. Trump invited Michigan lawmakers to meet with him at the White House as part of a growing and brazen campaign to subvert the electoral college process. It is not clear how many Michigan lawmakers will be making the trip to D.C. However, it was made clear that Trump is seeking to ask local legislatures to subvert the popular vote and send their own pro-Trump delegations to the electoral college. The far-fetched and legally dubious theory appears to be a Hail Mary, as it has become increasingly clear that Trump is in fact not planning to vacate the White House despite a thumping win by President-elect Joe Biden. Leading Republicans have also backed Trump in what is appearing to be a coup in slow motion. The constitutional crisis is shaping up as potentially the gravest threat American democracy has faced. Trump suggested in a legal challenge that Pennsylvania set aside the popular vote and pressured county officials in Arizona to delay certifying vote tallies. One of Trump's attorneys, Sidney Powell, claimed that, quote, Trump won by a landslide. We are going to prove it, and we are going to reclaim the United States of America for the people who vote for freedom. Powell, who went so far as to claim this week that the president had in fact won the election, quote, not just by hundreds of thousands of votes, but by millions of votes, She claimed that votes had been shifted to Biden by a software program, quote, designed expressly for that purpose. Powell continued by accusing Venezuelan and Cuban communists of infiltrating American election technology. She said the CIA had previously ignored complaints about this software and urged the president to fire Gina Haspel, the CIA director. Her comments were then shared by the official GOP Twitter account. That same account later tweeted a fundraising link to a page reading, quote, the Democrats will try to steal this election. We can't allow the left-wing mob to undermine our election. Meanwhile, Rudy Giuliani unleashed a fire hose of conspiracy theories, false claims, and unfounded fraud charges at a press conference. As he spoke, a dark liquid that was seemingly hair dye streamed down both sides of his face. Joe Biden, when asked about the press conference, called those comments breathtakingly irresponsible. Quote, it's hard to fathom how this man thinks. I'm confident he knows he hasn't won and is not going to win, and we're going to be sworn in on January 20th. Chris Krebs, the senior cybersecurity official who countered several of Trump's false claims about the election and was subsequently fired, tweeted that Giuliani's conference was, quote, the most dangerous one hour and 45 minutes of television in American history and possibly the craziest. Day 1402, November 21st. Michigan lawmakers, after meeting with Trump, said they would not intervene in the state's election certification process. Quote, we will follow the law and follow the normal process regarding Michigan's electors, just as we have said throughout this election, said the state's top two Republican leaders in a statement. Also, more Republicans broke with Trump. Representative Kay Granger told CNN that she had great concerns about Trump's actions, and she thought, quote, it's time for him to really realize and be very clear about what's going on. Senator Lamar Alexander said in a statement the Trump administration also needed to start participating in the transition process. 
In court, Trump's lawyers were challenged in Pennsylvania, quote, you're alleging that the two individual plaintiffs were denied the right to vote. But at bottom, you're asking this court to invalidate more than 6.8 million votes, thereby disenfranchising every single voter in the Commonwealth. Can you tell me how this result can possibly be justified? Rudy Giuliani replied that he was not asking about election fraud and then dissembled. Georgia certified their state's general election results. That certification followed a hand recount requested by the Trump campaign. The recount found that Biden beat Trump by more than 12,000 votes. The Census Bureau has concluded they will not be able to provide totals until after Trump leaves office in January. That is a boon to Democrats and a blow to Trump's plan to attempt to remove unauthorized immigrants from the count for the first time in history. That plan would have left both an older and whiter population as the basis for divvying up House seats and would likely have increased the number of House seats held by Republicans over the next decade. Don Trump Jr. breezily announced, quote, apparently I got the Rona. He then asked his supporters for their book and Netflix recommendations before saying, I may have a couple days of solo time and there's only so many guns I can clean before that gets bored. Trump delivered a bizarre speech to leaders of the G20, telling them he's looking forward to working with them. Trump's short speech was in stark contrast to comments from other leaders which focused on the pandemic. Trump boasted about the U.S. economy and military and repeated his false claims that Operation Warp Speed was behind both the first two successful coronavirus vaccines. That is false. An aide to the United Kingdom told the British press, quote, Trump's was the anomalous speech everyone else talked about global matters of life and death. Trump then skipped the G20 summit, pandemic preparedness and response seminar to go play golf. Day 1403, November 22nd. Two New York State fraud investigations into Trump and his businesses are now focusing on $26 million in consulting fee tax write-offs, some of which went to Ivanka Trump. On a 2017 disclosure form Ivanka filed when joining the White House, she reported receiving payments from a consulting company she co-owned, which totaled $747,622. That exactly matches consulting fees claims as tax deductions by the Trump Organization. Ivanka tweeted that the New York State investigations were, quote, harassment motivated by politics, publicity, and rage. A federal judge ordered the Trump administration to stop expelling immigrant children who cross the southern border alone before they can request asylum. Trump has expelled at least 8,800 unaccompanied children since March. The White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows says he, quote, can't guarantee that lawmakers will reach a deal to avert a mid-December government shutdown. Congress and the White House have until December 11th to approve new spending legislation to prevent the government from shutting down. The Trump administration vaccine distribution team will not brief Biden's transition team. And they said, quote, we have no plans to do so. Housing and Urban Development Secretary Ben Carson said he became extremely sick from COVID, but now believes he is out of the woods after receiving an experimental antibody treatment. Carson said in a statement he became desperately ill and noted he has several comorbidities. Meanwhile, the White House announced plans to host indoor holiday parties despite warnings from health experts. It is known that a September Rose Garden event was a super spreader for COVID. Currently, there are a number of White House workers, including Rudy Giuliani's son, Andrew, who is a special assistant to the president, who have tested positive. 
1,404 November 23rd. Tensions are continuing to rise in Washington after Georgia certified Joe Biden as the winner of their electoral votes. The Trump campaign saw another lawsuit tossed out in Pennsylvania, and yet more Republicans and business leaders signaled it was time for Trump to move on. In a sharply worded dismissal with prejudice in Pennsylvania, Judge Matthew Brand said that Trump's campaign had asked him to disenfranchise nearly 7 million voters, but had failed to come, quote, armed with compelling legal arguments and factual proof of rampant corruption. In a 37-page ruling, Brand wrote, quote, this court has been presented with strained legal arguments without merit and speculative accusations that were unsupported by evidence. This claim, like Frankenstein's monster, has been haphazardly stitched together. Trump responded with an explicit call for Republican allies in the states to dismiss the voters. Claiming falsely his lawyers had found, quote, hundreds of thousands of illegal votes, he called on his allies in the courts and state houses to have the courage to name a slate of pro-Trump electors. Eyes now turn today to Michigan, which is certifying their votes. Michigan Republicans have said they will not go along with Trump's plans. Trump apparently fired lawyer Sidney Powell after she made a series of bizarre claims on a right-wing website. Powell was quoted by Newsmax as saying that Trump was the victim of a scheme of thousands of co-conspirators involving the major political parties lasting decades and in which voting systems in the United States had ties to the late Venezuelan autocrat Hugo Chavez. Quote, it's so big, nobody wants to wrap their head about it, nobody wants to untie all the little knots that go into it, but we have to. This cannot go on. Our votes must be counted fair and true. Powell offered no evidence for her claims, and when she had finished with her long rant, a stunned anchor told her the claims sounded nuts. Trump's appointees appear to be attempting to kneecap a Biden administration before it takes power. Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin suddenly ended emergency lending programs that the Fed had been using to help keep credit flowing. He also moved to claw back much of the money that supports those programs, a move that will handicap the next administration. Trump is also continuing to block Biden's transition team. And Trump said he will veto legislation to fund the military unless a bipartisan provision to rename military bases honoring Confederate military leaders is removed. The Senate and the House overwhelmingly passed a provision that would change the names of Confederate named bases as part of the National Defense Authorization Act. Day 1405, November 24th. Trump finally authorized President-elect Joe Biden to begin a formal transition process after Michigan certified Biden as its winner. Biden's popular vote lead also swelled to 6 million votes after Michigan certified his win. That move came after weeks of steady pressure from corporate leaders, Democrats, and some Republicans for Trump to acknowledge his loss three weeks ago. Trump has not yet conceded and may never concede, but the move was the clearest sign yet his regime is coming to an end. Biden also continued to fill his cabinet. He is now expected to nominate Janet Yellen, who was the first woman to lead the Federal Reserve, to be the next Treasury Secretary. If confirmed, Yellen would be the first woman to lead the Treasury in 231 years. Biden also announced he would pick John Kerry as his climate czar, Alejandro Mayorkas to be his Secretary of the Department of Homeland Security, and Avril Haines to be the Director of National Intelligence. Mayorkas would be the first Latino to run the nation's immigration department. Haines would be the first woman to run the country's spycraft. All of Biden's nominees need to be confirmed by the Senate. General Motors withdrew from Trump's attempt to nullify California's fuel economy rules and publicly urged Toyota and Fiat Chrysler to do the same. The move was the strongest signal yet that political lines are being redrawn in D.C. GM also said it was ready to work with Joe Biden and said they would transition to making electric vehicles. 
And the Trump administration has quietly acquired at least 135 tracts of privately owned land to build Trump's border wall along the U.S.-Mexico border. They now plan to acquire another 991. The Justice Department has filed 109 lawsuits against landowners to seize their property permanently. Trump's own lawyers have prepared another 100 lawsuits against landowners there to permanently acquire their tracts. And Trump retweeted a series of bizarre videos from actor Randy Quaid. Quaid said he was sick of Fox News. He called for a do-over of the votes that Trump lost. Trump also wrote, quote, Thank you, Randy, working hard to clear up the stench of the 2020 election hoax. Randy Quaid, of course, is a well-known political commentator. Day 1406, November 25th. Pennsylvania and Nevada moved to certify their 2020 election results, awarding a combined 26 electoral votes to Biden. North Carolina also certified its vote totals, awarding their 15 electoral votes to Trump. Biden has won 306 electoral votes. Trump won 232. COVID in the United States continues to surge. We have seen 2 million cases in just two weeks. States are now moving to shut down a disturbingly busy holiday season. California reported nearly 18,000 new cases. That is well more than it or any other state before it, and they imposed a curfew. Pennsylvania told all bars to stop selling alcohol at 5 o'clock in the busiest bar day of the year. Maryland did the same, closing off sales at 10. However, overseas, which is about three weeks ahead of us in the curve, started to make moves to loosen their restrictions. France said it would phase out restrictions starting on Sunday, and the United Kingdom said it could allow residents to gather for Christmas. The Dow Jones jumped past 30,000 for the first time, signaling a continuing post-election rally buoyed by promising results from coronavirus vaccine trials. President-elect Biden's win has also been cheered on Wall Street, which has continued to rise despite dismal economic news at large. America still has 21 million people out of work, and the continuing refusal of congressional Republicans to pass a broad-based stimulus is dragging businesses down across America. Unemployment claims were again up this week. Trump made an impromptu appearance in the White House briefing room to celebrate the Dow surpassing 30,000 points for the first time, telling reporters he, quote, wanted to congratulate the people of our country because there are no people like you. Trump then called the milestone a sacred number and then left without taking questions. A hot mic caught an aide saying, well, that was some weird... In a remarkable move, YouTube has suspended the One America News Network, which is a far right-wing channel that has aggressively pushed false claims about election fraud for violating its policies on misinformation. The video YouTube removed was one that claimed there is a guaranteed cure for COVID-19. YouTube said OANN is banned for a week. Trump told aides he plans to pardon his former national security advisor, Michael Flynn. Flynn's pardon is just one of a string of pardons he plans to issue before leaving office. Flynn, of course, was found guilty of lying to the FBI. Trump is also looking to pardon himself in what would be an unprecedented move. Trump also pardoned his final turkeys ahead of Thanksgiving. Quote, Thanksgiving is a very special day for turkeys. Not a very good one if you think about it. Trump ignored a question from a reporter about whether he would pardon himself. Meanwhile, the Supreme Court is scheduled to hear a case on November 30th about a seemingly unconstitutional memo written by Trump. The memo reads that, quote, aliens who are not in lawful immigration status should not be counted when seats in the House of Representatives are allocated following the 2020 census. The Constitution says plainly that, quote, representatives shall be apportioned among the several states according to their respective numbers, counting the whole number of persons in each state, excluding Indians not taxed. If Trump's memo is held up as legal, it would give an enormous lift to Republicans in House redistricting. 
Since Trump lost the election, he has tweeted some 500 times. He has done little other work according to his public calendar, which shows whole days as sitting as empty and other days as, quote, just having lunch with Mike Pence. Just 3% of Trump voters believe that Biden legitimately won the 2020 election. 73% said Trump won. 53% of Republican voters say they will vote for Trump in 2024. Just 8% said they would support a candidacy from Don Jr. These are the Trump Diaries. Chuck Mertz spoke with Jack Schneider and Jennifer Berkshire about the right systematic, decades-long attack on public schools, why has public education become a target for conservatives, and why do conservatives want less education in general? This is Hell airs every Sunday at 10 a.m. What is a better way, Jen, to determine how kids are doing in school than these this test-based accountability? The irony is that the language that you're talking about that's so often used by um, members of the people on the right at the state level, you often get the sense that it's almost like a cult, that they speak in the exact same words, right? They rail against the system the way that we so often hear DeVos doing, and they talk about uh, public schools sort of stamping the individuality out of kids and batch processing them. And Jack and I started to notice that, you know, that it didn't really matter who the people were. That's how they, that's how they talked. And I think one of the big ironies with this is that that kind of condemnation of the what's become standardized about schooling, which is the testing that Jack was just talking about, that really speaks to people, even if they believe in public schools and like their own public schools, right? That that's the thing. That's one of the real ironies of our age that it's been the the Democrats that have so forcefully pushed uh, a kind of you know a, a standardized measurement that people feel is really alien. It's not It's not a complete measure of what they want schools to do. And one of the things that we're seeing so vividly right now in this moment of democratic crisis is that we put so much emphasis on measuring school success as far as boosting student test scores in math and English. And it turns out things like, you know, well-rounded citizen, citizenry are absolutely vital. So I think a big start to undoing the damage that's been done in large part by Democrats is to acknowledge that our measures simply aren't complete enough and that one of the ways that we're going to have to, you know, if we're if we're going to successfully fend off these efforts at the state level to dismantle schools, we're going to have to respond to the part of the rights message that is appealing to parents. And Jack, just again on that, that standardized testing, just for a moment, that standardized measurement makes me think of another part of your book where you talk about the obsession that often Democrats have with innovation and Silicon Valley when it comes to education. So uh, do do are these standardized tests, is this obsession with algorithms, is this all part of the Democrats' uh, focus on innovation and Silicon Valley being the future for America? schools? Well, I think that in the same way that the Republican Party has been recently captured uh, by the far right, 
uh, the Democratic Party, at least with regard to education policy, has been controlled by the neoliberal faction. And neoliberals believe that you can build systems that will operate without the need for human judgment, right? This is the sort of McKinsey consulting approach to public institutions. So rather than saying, let's actually invest in building capacity in all of our communities. We've got 98,000 public schools in this country. Let's figure out how to empower local community members, parents, families, the students in those schools, the educators in those schools, and the broader community to govern their schools, uh, to be involved in figuring out what the quality of the schools is for advocating for needed resources and for you know engaging in a kind of sensible, locally-driven reform effort that would be a constant process rather than something parachuted down from the state level. They're not interested in that. right? They are instead more interested in systems that can run without the need for the involvement of local people and controlling them from a kind of uh, centralized directorate, if you will, right? That standardized tests are a perfect mechanism for that. Um, you suddenly can gain control over 13,000 school districts and 98,000 schools in a way that you would never be able to otherwise because the scale is too big. And that's the draw of technology as well, right? That there will be some design that can be built out to scale that will enable elites to enact a kind of enlightened vision uh, rather than engaging the hoi polloi in trying to you know, create a better governance system for their own schools. Um, and this is what has made the Democrats so vulnerable to Trumpism, right? Because these kinds of approaches smack of elitism. Uh, they smack of it because they are elitist. Uh, and the obsession with Silicon Valley um, is not only elitist in that way, uh, it also channels huge sums uh, to corporate interests that most often don't lead to school improvement and just lead to more spending on products that don't help anybody. We represent a signature song from Chicago's own Avantist. Recorded in Studio A by Ari Shellist, this is Tidal Wave. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. You're now tuned into Avantis FM. Let's go!
Yeah, we had this wonderful spread. You know, everyone has these sort of different dietary restrictions over there. There's a, right. a, a divert, not just a diversity of ideologies, but a diversity of palates. Thank you, palates. Yes. So, but they were all delicious. There was the lentil loaf turkey, mm. um, which inside of was a fully keto stuffing, which, if to be to be fair, was essentially the innards of a turkey placed inside of the lentil loaf. Really? Uh, so, so it's a it's a it's a bean it's it's a produce based a loaf that is stuffed with with meat. Right, and that's to to give the both the vegans and the keto dieters at the staff give them both something they can enjoy. Sure, it does seem to cancel for one to cancel the other out, though, don't you think? Oh, you know, there's there's gradations and what have you. Um, I'm, sure, they, they worked out. There was no bad blood. Mm-hmm. It's all coming from the same place: keto, vegan, yeah. vegetarianism, breatharianism, pectitarianism, sure. fruitarianism. And I mean, the, there, there's something there for the freegans, at least. Oh, <laughs> what would a universe? What would an institute be if it did not have free food? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, we also had a raw food pumpkin pie, uh, and then that of that basically being raw chunks of pumpkin laid in a bowl of flour. And it sounds bizarre. It sounds sounds not how very appetizing. That, how is that even a pie at that point? Well, it's the ingredients of a pie, but raw. It's like a deconstructed pie. I feel like it's, it would be more like a, of a mush at that point. It, it's more lightly dusted pumpkin chunks, but it is raw food, and it was it was not. Um, I would not necessarily make it for myself, but it was quite good. Mm. We also had some mashed lotus root with a fermented fish gravy, sort of a pay, paying homage to the non-Western traditions. 
we have some a couple of non-Western colleagues sure. at the Institute of Spirit Science. Mm-hmm. All, all of them who appreciate this edition in, in particular. Um, not necessarily all of them, but it was it was a one little way one one little way to sort of to sort of throw them a bone sure. or a thought, fermented fish in this case. Um, we also had some cranberry sauce. Okay. Yeah. And, standard. And and um, for the breatharians, um, they have very very specific dietary needs. But luckily, we had a high lumen sun lamp and a canister of Himalayan air brought in just for them to get their their nutritional sort of supplements over. So, this. so Brett, these are these are people that that exclusively breathe for nutrition and stare into the sun. Yes, I see. It's a very very compelling field of research coming out of there. Um, Certainly. And, and to, to your earlier point where you sort of almost, I feel very snidely implied that we were putting people at risk by having this event. I, I think that's the common belief. Well, uh, well, perhaps for the common people, but <laughs> we, uh, we have safety was first and foremost mm-hmm. on our mind. We had antiseptic incense burning the entire time. The Great Hall itself is a Faraday cage preventing any sort of RF interference, um, entity interference. And, of course, the food was cooked with 100% antiviral herbs and spices. We're talking things about things like turmeric and sage. And what make these, what make these ant- antiviral? Um, have you ever put turmeric on a virus? Me personally, if you had, not with intention. If you had, you would know that there is. It is one of the the most potent virucidal agents known to both Western, Eastern, and world and spiritual science. I see. Well, uh, Rowan, were you at least wearing? masks or, or face coverings of any kind not 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 necessarily there was a point in the evening um after the meal where um as is we spend with every harvest knocked we all undressed and got oiled up yeah wait um excuse me wait wait the... okay i i think i get the point uh there rowan. were masks involved at that point in the evening okay yeah that's that's great um well thank you for that rowan the Lump and Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is overseen by Jamie Trecker, voiceovers by Shanna Van Volt, additional production by Cole Eisenberg, Julie Wu, Sergio Rodriguez, Neil Gaynor, Lane Gerbig, Alexander Jerry, John Piotrowski, Ari Shellist, and Annie Klein. Live music production by Ari Shellist. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. The Lumpen Radio Sting is by Dan Jugal. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. Yeah.